together, it's great to welcome you on as a guest of GSA's Girls Uninterrupted podcast. Now, obviously, we know each other uh, very well, of course, as your GSA president. But for our listeners, firstly, I'm Donna Stevens, GSA's chief executive. And Heather is head of Lady Eleanor Hollis School, an independent school for girls in Hampton in southwest London, which she has led since 2014. As I mentioned, Heather is also GSA's president this year. She grew up in Belfast and attended a grammar school and then read geography at Edinburgh University and later gained a Master of Science in Land Economy at Wolfson College in Cambridge. She began a career at management consultancy Touche Ross and went on to spend two years in the voluntary sector before moving to teaching in 1995. Prior to LEH, Heather was deputy head at Latimer Upper School and headmistress at Wimbledon High from 2008 to 2014. Heather retires at the end of this academic year and as a passionate advocate for lifelong learning is planning to learn to fly a helicopter. In this series, Heather, I have conversations with a whole host of interesting people who give our listeners a much needed focus from a girls' school's perspective on everything that matters to girls in education. It's good to have you here today. We're recording this on a Monday afternoon. How do Mondays usually look for you? Well, uh, I start the, the most wonderful way to start a Monday is without having a whole school assembly. One of the most effective changes that I've made, and, and many heads will uh, understand this, was to move our whole school assembly of the year to Tuesday because it means I've now got my Sunday back, hooray. And uh, that is great. So in the morning, I have a meeting, start of week meeting with my senior leaders, my two deputy heads and my finance director. And then we have our SMT meeting, which is a two hour meeting, uh, which includes all the other members of senior management. And, and that's about it really. Any external meetings that we're having, you know, any heads of department, heads of year, uh, staff meetings, they tend to happen on a Monday afternoon after school as well. And then you can enjoy that assembly on Tuesday. Um, so have you been on a podcast before and how did you feel when we invited you on to ours? Well, I've never been on a podcast, as you can probably tell, and I'm very excited to be on one. And I'm very relieved that my first one has a friendly person interviewing me. I and mean, you're not going to try and catch me out. She said, hopefully, hopefully. I'll catch it out here. So I'm going to start with leadership and in particular female leadership. Can you tell us about your journey and what inspired you to become a head teacher of a girls' school? Two girls' schools, in fact. Well, I moved into teaching, as you've said already, when I was a little bit older. So I, I wanted to be a teacher, but I particularly wanted right from the get-go to become a head teacher. And I myself went to an all-girls school um, entirely unplanned and, and uh, accidentally my first job was in an all-girls school Blackheath High School and so I sort of settled into that I then went on to sick, be head of sick form at Haberdasher's Asks another all-girls school then I completely shifted to an all-boys school uh, when I went to Latimer Upper as deputy head which was quite an undertaking because they'd never had a woman and at the top level of the school at all at that point um, and we brought that was the beginning just before they started to bring girls in through the school so I taught the co-ed side of that as well but I think ultimately girls alone in girls schools have more fun and I suspect boys and boys schools have more fun as well you don't have to adapt your behavior 
to make sure that it doesn't in any way interact, interrupt or disrupt the other gender. So it's easier to say yes to things to girls because, you know, the girls will enjoy it and the girls will have a laugh or they'll they'll do something worthwhile and they'll do it in a way that suits them without anybody thinking it's a stupid idea or it's not going to work or just being difficult. Equally, the boys can do the things they want to do and not have to worry about the girl's reaction or about them, the, the girls being anxious at what's going on. So all in all, I say yes to my uh, students far more often than I ever say no when they come in with bright ideas um, for exciting things to do. Thanks, Helen. Some interesting points then. It's good that you've got the perspective of both the boys' schools, the girls' schools and co-ed, because it sounded like you were at last month when, when that change took place. So um, in terms of your inspiration to become to work in girls schools what what inspired you to become gsa's president what have you enjoyed and learned in the role is it as you expected what surprised you so i've wanted to be gsa president for a number of years and i missed my chance actually uh, about well nine years ago because the year that i decided right i'm going to go for it this year was the year i got the job here at leh and i didn't, didn't feel i could be president of gsa and in my first year at a new school and i couldn't have been so i'm that was a good decision uh, and then it sort of went out of my mind for a while and then i was um if someone suggested to me it might never be too late so why not when i came for it this time i hadn't planned at that point to be retiring um, at the end of it. But there we go. So here I am. And I've had a, a really interesting year, I must admit. It's been, I'm not sure quite what I expected, but it has been more and better than I expected. I've really enjoyed getting to know far more heads from other schools. I've enjoyed the weekly meetings that we have, Donna, with the, the vice president and the president-elect and, and the uh, treasurer where we really get into lots of nitty gritty about education in general, about girls' education specifically, and about all of the things that are impacting on our sector and the extent to which GSA can and should get involved in these and how we might you know, bring um, positive input into any of these areas. And that has been really, really interesting, looking more broadly across the whole of the sector, not just my own school in my own area that's good and i'm glad you found it interesting and a positive experience and hopefully other gsa heads are listening um and might be inspired to apply for that role in the future what role do you think mentorship plays in your school and, and how do you connect girls with successful female role models well we have a very active uh, and an enthusiastic engaged uh, alumni network uh, we've worked on that a lot in my time here. We've really worked on the friend raising side of things. We've added in several new uh, alumni get together opportunities. We've livened things up for younger alumni and we've done lots of stuff to keep them involved. But I think the biggest thing that we've done is actually launch a uh, an online hub for our alumni where we can put people, current students in contact with old girls who've perhaps pursued a career or been interested in an area of work or a degree at university, which overlaps with theirs. And it gives them a lot of insight. So it's careers advice, but with a bit extra because it's one to one and it's personalized. Uh, and we're building on that all the time. I mean, loads of our old girls come in to do specific careers talks uh, and advise and, and answer questions 
in general to to the year groups but um, then there's this one-to-one -one thing that we're working on as well good I'm, I'm assuming that's sort of you know contributes to the culture of the school so how how what other ways have you sort of set the tone or culture at leh or other schools in fact you've worked out yes i feel that um one of the things that was i felt not quite uh what i wanted it to be when i first joined was the general feeling of happiness and enjoyment around the school so it was a very successful school um you know students had wonderful things to say about it old girls loved it it was all absolutely fine but i felt that we could all be relaxing a little bit more and enjoying ourselves a little bit more in school and so i suppose one of the the things that i well first of all i i feel very strongly and i introduced this at wimbledon high when my when I was there, this idea, particularly for teenage girls, uh, not to be a perfectionist, not to seek perfection, and not to be afraid of trying things and failing. And, you know, being determined that the best way to learn, in fact, in many areas, the only way to learn is to keep practicing, even when it goes horribly wrong, and you will gradually learn and build your skill and your knowledge. And it's that sort of thing takes a bit of pressure off. So there's no, none of this assumption that you've got to get everything right and you should always be scoring 10 out of 10 and always getting A's and A stars. It's all much more, I won't say laid back because when it comes to exams, we really focus, but the, the actual education is not exam focused. It is educational focused and it's much more fun, I think, for that reason. And we do a lot more than just exams, syllabus and, and national curriculum and that sort of thing. For that very reason because we've got time and energy to do that yeah. it's great and that's got a really you know important message for our girls there in terms of balancing you know the fun and you know the you know what they're aiming for um with with their whether it's their exams or their careers or their sporting achievements what is the biggest risk you've ever taken in your career <laughs> so there's so many of them <laughs> i know well <laughs> I'm not sure whether there were any at all. I suppose, to be perfectly honest, the biggest risk I took was taking a year off to train. Well, I call it a year off. It was a year off at university, getting my PGCE, um, not earning any money, and not knowing whether I would be successful in education, taking a massive pay cut in order to do it. Um, that was a pretty big risk. Uh, and luckily, I had my husband's complete support in doing that, and he knew how miserable I was in my the job I had at the time and therefore was very help, willing to encourage and support me um, financially as well as well as giving more giving me moral support so that was a pretty big risk although I didn't sort of think about it at the time in that light I have to admit that's just looking back on it perhaps yeah and I can relate to that because I took a similar risk when I moved out of the corporate sector and, and I quartered my salary to move into the, the more yeah. not-for-profit uh, social space. Let's move on to girls and girls-only education then. In your opinion, what are some of the most pressing issues facing girls' education today and how can they be addressed? I think some of them, some of the pressing issues face children, um, not just girls but boys as well and one of the key pressing issues is the funding of our education system which is why the the independent sector is doing so well because unfortunately you know that the amount of funding required to run a really really excellent school is a lot higher than any government has been willing to contribute when it comes to girls i think there are a lot of missed opportunities 
for girls and young women who feel that they are that they have to behave in a certain way and they have to to do things that are expected of them that may be less common now than it was when I was a teenager, which is a very long time ago. And therefore, I am shocked that it isn't better than it is. I listen to the girls here at school and they don't say things that different to the things that we were all saying in school in the 1970s. And, you know, we we didn't come through female emancipation and, uh, and uh, the feminist um, revolution to just be where we were 50 years ago. So that's a bit depressing, if I'm honest. Uh, and I think that there is a lot of this is societal, you know, that women and girls are, we know how badly treated and how miserable things can be. And I think what I want is for our students to focus on the positive side, the things they can do, the things they want to do, the things that society does make uh, does enable them to do and the things that they can ensure, you know, if they really uh, want to do something, they can. And I, I want us to focus more on the can-do stuff. I wish we'd made more progress than we have. We still have a lot of girls who don't feel that they can do maths, who don't feel that science is their thing. I have a school full of scientists, so I can prove to you that this is a girl's thing. Uh, and it just depends on how the school markets their science and STEM and how the school provides that support and teaches girls in a way that girls can really get it and build their confidence and believe in themselves. I mean, you're a mathematician, Donna, so you know exactly what I mean. I did A-level maths. I wasn't particularly skilled at it, but I wasn't very well taught, if I'm honest. And I just think that it really matters to pay attention to that, but not at the cost of all the other things that girls would rather do. You know, the other side of this is that we end up with, with anyone doing subjects that they don't want to do because they feel they should. So it's getting rid of all of those things that, that are extraneous influences, which may not be very helpful. That's interesting and, and yeah, and a little depressing, as you said, that the progress has been potentially slow in the last sort of 15 years. And I think you're talking about girls more generally as opposed to girls in your particular school and, and girls in, in GSA schools, you know, again, more generally, because, you know, we know that girls in girls' schools are three times more likely to do a further maths A-level if they're at a girls' school compared to a co-ed school. But, yeah, unfortunately, the rate of change um, is, hasn't been as quick as we, we've looked. Although we we, are, we have looked at some recent data there, and I think there is a little bit of catch-up. That gap is starting to close a little bit, and that's good because we want girls everywhere to be doing maths if they like maths or um, and feel inspired exactly. to or physics exactly. or whatever, whatever it might be. It doesn't be, have to be any of those things. What do you think are the unique challenges and opportunities you see in leading a girls' school in particular compared to another type of school? The unique challenges? Well, there is, I think, still a tendency for parents to be more cautious and protective of their daughters than of their sons. Uh, we have a boys' school next door. I, we're very good um, friends and have good interactions between the schools at all levels and Kevin Nibbs, the head uh, of Hampton and um, Hampton School and I meet regularly and we compare notes often on parent reactions to things. So we have a coach service which brings boys and girls together into school in the morning and goes, takes them home again at four o'clock. We in uh, at LEH did some research that showed we needed another coach at six o'clock for those who wanted to do extracurricular activities. And I discussed with Kevin doing both of us adding this on together. And he said, no, I don't need to do that because 
when boys get come out of extracurricular at six o'clock, they'll just get on a bus and the parents don't worry, but the parents worried about the girls getting on the bus. And the irony is, of course, as we now know, statistically speaking, young men are more up in, at risk of fights and, and various things than young women, but young women are at risk of the different things potentially. Uh, and we can get, you know, so wound up in this that we, we reduce our, our daughters and our students' freedoms. And that's pretty awful to think of. Um, so I'm very determined that we, you know, allow the girls to take control of their own decision-making and get out there and learn how to cope with the world and not have their parents fix everything for them all the time. They'll never learn. Yeah, so how do you address that in your school community then, these sort of gender stereotypes, whether it be walking home from school or, or any, yeah. Whatever it is, yes, yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I'm very determined to say to parents, and I've written several um, blogs about this and spoken to parents at parents' events about this right throughout my career, talking about the only way that children learn to take risks in a sensible uh, way is by practicing. And if they reach the age of 18 or 19 and they've never had to solve their own problems or take risks for themselves or take risks with real consequences, you know, if they take a risk and it doesn't work, they know mom and dad will bail them out or help them. But risks with real consequences, they need to know how to do that. If you've forever sorted out all your children's and smoothed, you know, being a snowplow parent or a helicopter parent or whatever other sort of form of transport parent you'd like to be, if you've done that for them all the time, how would they ever know what to do for themselves? You know, are you going to be doing that for them when they're 40, when they're 50? I mean, it's not fair. It's not fair to infantilize them on a permanent basis by fixing all their problems. Yeah, that's a good point. And I tell, I say this to parents a lot. We offer lots of parenting talks in the, you know, in the evenings that are open to many, not just us, but all our local state school partners can join these either in person or online. And they're very, very popular. Yeah, that's helpful. I attended a talk recently with a leading psychologist and, and there's a concept of sort of helicopter parenting, over-parenting mm. and how, you yeah. know, statistically, it's much more prevalent with daughters than it is with boys. And that's yes. only going to be unhelpful as they progress through their lives. So, yes, yeah, interesting to see that. Can I talk about AI? And, um, you know, we, so there's an article today, wasn't it? Um, would, you know, would you would you suggest all schools go as far as um, Tom Rogerson's maverick approach there about, you know, children must make robots and um, you know how to use robots and, and he's hiring a a dedicated AI um, lead at his school. Um, what are your thoughts on AI and and his his take in particular? I am not going to rush into, and I wouldn't recommend anyone rushes into decision making on this because it's changing all the time. And I think the one thing that we have rushed into is opening our eyes and paying attention to what's going on. So we're listening, we're watching, we're reading about it. We've got a um, a digital community here that has been working on our digital um, upgrades for years and they've now taken this into their remit. We've got one or two people with specific interest and expertise already who know about these things. Um, and the girls themselves are leading on it and, and we talk to them a lot about it. We use AI in the classroom under supervision so that they can see how it works and when it doesn't work and what worked, what's good and what's bad. And when it's, when it's lying to you and how to be, it's a bit like reading, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we were encouraging um, students to read the papers with 
a cynical eye and to be aware of what was really um, being said and who might be saying it. And it's now the same thing with, with anything online. Just because it's online doesn't mean you it's true. It's that sort of approach. So nothing, or I'm not going to hire extra people right now because I think we've got skills enough in-house for the time being and we just keep a very close watching brief. Yeah, that's right. I think it's exciting times in terms of the, the power mm. of it for whether it's students or teacher workload or other things, but, you know, the you know, caution yeah. as well is needed. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that works out with Tom and uh, we'll be watching that. Yes, I would also say um, uh, helping with teaching needs to be also treated with a little bit of caution because I think if I were a parent the last thing I would want to read is a report about my child that's been developed by AI. I mean frankly that makes me very well it makes me a bit cross and a bit anxious because you know teachers know their pupils and should be writing proper reports for them not getting a computer to do it for them. Yeah it's interesting isn't it I think there's different views on this and, and, and I'm not a teacher and I've not used it I've not even used it I've got as far as downloading it onto my phone and not actually used it yet but there are some saying yeah, yeah. they get excellent reports out of it but it's, it's early days and it's exciting but yeah there's caution needed for sure should we talk about uh recruitment and retention then of teachers um you know it, it's been talked about, about quite a lot um recently what do you think creates the right environment to attract staff and then retain them well, I have always worked on the principle that retention is an overrated uh, desire. We don't want people leaving every five minutes. But if you are going to attract good staff, the core message is if you come to my school, you will have training, you will have support, you will have you will learn and grow professionally so that when you're ready, you can move on and up professionally within your career. So you don't come here and get stuck unless you choose to stay because many te- we also have a, a system where if you don't want to move into management you can still increase salaries by taking by having uh, advanced teacher status so in order to keep really good teachers in the classroom as opposed to taking them out of the classroom to manage things people and and so on so i look for people to move on and leave in order to show that there's a really great and we're sending wonderful teachers out there to other schools I know as heads of department, heads of year, SMT members, whatever it happens to be. Uh, And I do think that that is a very valid um, way of attracting good people. Uh, I think just as an awful lot of word of mouth, you know, how friendly is your school? How welcoming? How supportive? How, you know, what what are the the pupils like? Are they uh, cooperative and collaborative and easy and pleasant and fun to work with? or are they very difficult and demanding and ditto with the parents and with colleagues, you know, how well did, did the staff room get on? What sort of a, an environment is it? And I think building an environment, this links back to our early, your earlier question about things that I changed in the school. Um, and I wanted the place just to be a happy place that people want to come to work here. You know, if you don't want to get up out of bed and come to work in the morning, that's a really sad state of affairs. And so I would like, I wanted to build a, a, an ethos and an atmosphere that was enjoyable on the main, you know, because we do expect teachers to work exceptionally hard during term time. And they work lots of weekends and evenings. They run lots of extracurricular clubs. They do, they go on residential trips in their own holidays. And we never had any problem getting people to do all of those things because they enjoy it, because it's actually fun to do it. Um, it's not a chore. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It's got to be a fun place to work. Um, talking about yeah. then your pupils, um, what 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 are they talking about right now? What do they want to talk about? Apart from exams, you mean? Uh, well, I guess that's your <laughs> that older time people. of year, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh well, the young ones too, because they've had their end of year exams uh, just yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So what are they talking about? Well, they are talking a bit about AI. There's no doubt about that. Um, they're talking about um how we won't let them wear uniform the way they want to. We're talking about things that you and I remember when we were at school. Some things never change, you know, some things never change. They're mostly, they talk far too much about social media. And that is, if I could change one thing, oh my goodness, that would be it. I really would, um, I just cannot, I just can't get my head around why this is such an addiction with young people. And we do have children here and I'm will every school in the country will have children who are genuinely addicted to this. And it isn't a problem that can be solved by school because most of them, I mean, they don't use social media much in school because they don't have access to it here, but they, it's a, it's an at home thing. Parents are tearing their hair out as well. I mean, we do more parenting talks on managing IT and social media than anything else because parents are desperate for advice and help. And cutting it out completely, we have experience and evidence of that not working either, because then your child is isolated and they're not part of, of the, the social life of the, the form. And it's a really very hard line to, to tread. Um, so I'm finding that particularly frustrating, but it is something that takes up far too much of their time, you know, preparing little dances for TikTok and all that sort of carry on. It's harmless, but it's time consuming. Yeah, and it's the always on element of it as well, isn't there? But you're right, it can't be solved by schools alone. There has to be a collective effort and um, that's not an easy one. Have you seen evidence of its effect on maybe the youngest girls? Go, youngest girls, we had a little bit of difficulty in our junior school, which we have, uh, the head of juniors has dealt with extremely well and parents have uh, been on board with that. But it's mainly in the senior school. Um, certainly, you know, there are children, in theory, TikTok is not, you're not supposed to be on TikTok till you're 14 or something and kids of seven and eight are doing it. Um, and their parents can't stop them, don't stop them, maybe aren't able to, I don't know, but it's, it's, um, it does have an impact, there's no doubt about it. And I think that this is one of those things, again, that over COVID, all sorts of rules and regulations were just let go because the whole situation was miserable. I used to stand up when I was first ahead and tell all the new parents on the first day of the first event they had in school, um, you know, what you must do is, or what I recommend you do, uh, is remove all technology from your daughter's bedrooms. Now that was in those days, televisions and, <laughs> sort of thing now of course it's ipads phones computers none of that should be in bedrooms because if you're it's amazing how many parents think that if their daughter promises not to look at it overnight she won't do it i mean really <laughs> really so if she promises not to look at it overnight she doesn't need it in her bedroom so we were getting we were making really good progress on that and then it all went to the four winds during lockdown which is, you know, and now we're almost starting all over again to at a time when there is even more pressure to use social media than there was previously. And we're probably as guilty as as parents or teachers as well. You know, I certainly check emails before bed. It's not a good habit. Um, and I never do. Never do. Don't, don't do, do that, that. Mama. That's my advice. Um, <laughs> don't do that, anybody. Uh, we're coming towards the end now. So what I want, what would be good to have is... Um, do you think you could give our listeners th 
three golden pieces of advice today for other GSA members or pupils or the education community more widely, any of those? Okay, so my first piece of advice actually would be, do not take technology into your bedroom. Get a good night's sleep. We know children need it, but heavens above, we need it as well. And I speak as one who doesn't sleep well, even though I have no technology and not even a television in my bedroom. Um, and I really strongly recommend, that's my first piece of advice. Now, other pieces of advice. Um, don't be put off by failure. You know, I recently did a talk for our alumni um, uh, um, groups and various people came to it and I was talking about my career and my life and I had worked out that I in my lifetime applied for over a hundred jobs and I've had eight so that's a lot of rejection and I had to apply to 13 headships before I got my first one and if I'd given up I, I would probably would have left the teaching profession by now if I hadn't continued to persevere. So don't give up easily. But at the other side of things, if it's just gone on and on and on and on and on, you need at some point to say, OK, that, fair enough. The message is it's not going to work. So don't endlessly go on, but don't give up too easily. That's two pieces of advice. I'm not sure that I'm well enough qualified to give <laughs> any more than that. But do you know, don't continue doing work that you're miserable doing. Don't feel you have to just because you said you would. I'm forever changing my mind, you know, committing never. I will never do that. I, I, when I was at school and when I left university, I was never, ever going to be a teacher. Never. So never say never. Or at least if you do say, but I reserve the right to change my mind. So be prepared to change your mind. Be brave enough to change your mind. Absolutely. I, personally, I, I only ever have a sort of five year outlook and don't think beyond that because actually you, you don't know how things could look in five years and you know and, and also I've taken a, a slightly funny career path a bit like you in terms of working in the global yeah. sector and mm -hmm. then moving into social sector and actually I I think that's fine I think the experiences you get along the way and it's, it's about not being rigid and thinking oh, yeah. it's okay to to deflect one way or the other if things aren't quite suiting you at that time so no it's good advice Heather what books are you reading at the moment uh, any must reads for our girls and women well, I've just finished reading um, The Chemistry Lesson. Ah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, which I loved. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I've also just finished reading Disgrace by Jem Kutsi, which is an old Booker winner a long time ago. And that's rather riled me up because it's it's all it's rather misogynist. But anyway, um, or it's about a misogynist. Um, and I'm currently reading um, a... Cormoran Strike, big, big fat novel, one of the early ones, because I'm a great fan of Galbraith, otherwise mm -hmm. known as J.K. Rowling. Oh, good. There we go. So, and I do enjoy my pot boilers and my um, murder mysteries and all of those sorts of things very much. They're great fun. Okay, well, we should bring this episode to a close now, but thanks for your time today. It's been great having this uh, discussion with you. Um, hopefully you enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I did, yes. It's been, it's been really good. I wish I'd thought of some better answers. I probably go away and think of them now <laughs> but it's been lovely to chat that's yeah, always the case thanks again heather and uh yeah goodbye bye bye-bye a big thank you to them both for joining us on this episode of the girls schools association podcast now the next episode is coming out soon but in the meantime thank you for listening to this one don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch and we look forward to seeing you next time bye for now <laughs>